0: Right. well, here we are again. Before we start on the uh, review of Progressive Revelation, where we've gotten so far, I want to answer a question you asked about Reformed Baptists. I did some reading, and there's no such thing as a Reformed Baptist denomination but some Baptist churches independently have chosen to adopt Reformed theology. So they are Reformed in their theology, but they are Baptist in their church polity yeah. because Reformed churches, you know, have a hierarchy of structure for the church. You have a headquarters and then you have sub headquarters and then you have local churches. Baptist churches, churches traditionally are independent that the church is its own entity there is no hierarchy so some of those churches Mm -hmm. (coughs) those baptist churches have simply chosen to adopt reformed theology it's it's a presbyterian form of government but that's i'm not talking about the presbyterian denomination but the form of government Presbyterian comes from presbytery, which comes from the Greek word for elder. So it's a, a, a system of, of elders ruling the church. For example, in the Presbyterian church, you have local congregations in different areas. And there are so many local congregations, they form what they call a synod or a group of these churches. And then that that those churches are answerable to that synod which consists of elders who dictate to those churches (laughs) what they're going to do and then each of those synods is responsible for the national headquarters that gives you know this is what you're going to do so baptist churches traditionally said no that's not it (laughs) it's independent you know rule for the baptist churches each Church is its own entity, its own authority. So they've they've retained that church polity, the way the church works, but they've decided to adopt reformed theology, Calvinism, basically. And we'll get more into that as we go on tonight. Uh, So that answer your question? So we're in the middle of talking about progressive revelation here—the idea that uh, God has revealed Himself a little bit at a time over the centuries. Um, This, as it says, there is the third principle in the, uh, the third principle to keep in mind as you're going through the interpretation process. The first was the priority of the original languages. And then we have the idea of the accommodation of Revelation. You have to be aware of literature and how it works. And now progressive revelation. So most of this we've been through already. God revealed himself in stages, beginning with his relationship with Adam and Eve and uh, progressing to the complex revelation in Christ. And we went through those (coughs) verses that are listed there.
1: Terry, has there been major stages in Progressive Revelation? I'm thinking of it like for the, temple, the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Mankind would never have invented the Ten
0: Commandments. <laughs> no. Yeah, that's kind of what we're in the middle of studying.
1: Yeah, yeah. so there are definite stages.
0: Right. It. And two ways to look at it, which, <laughs> which we'll get yeah. to. Okay, So basically, the, the the impact of Progressive Revelation on interpretation uh, is that the way you look at Scripture will determine how you understand Scripture. Okay, So as, as it says up there, to understand any Scripture, you have to look at what the writer and the readers knew about God, because we know more about God than the Old Testament writers did. So if you're understanding or trying to understand an Old, Old Testament passage, you can't read our understanding of God into that passage, because the writer didn't know that then. So that's usually called the dispensational placement, and we, we talked about uh, dispensationalism and we got a little bit into covenants last time. This is kind of a complex issue, but we're getting just an overview because our purpose is not to study dispensationalism and covenant theology, but just to indicate how they impact interpretation so that you'll be aware of these things as you study scripture. Okay? So dispensationalism and covenant theology are two ways of uh, looking at Scripture. And we, in that handout that I gave you before, we looked at the dispensations. There are periods of time in which God administered his kingdom uh, throughout the centuries. He used different methods of administration in different periods of time. And you can see those quite clearly. Now the Bible never talks about dispensations, it never mentions them, but as you go back and look at scripture and analyze how it's structured, you can see, oh yeah, there's this period, there's this, and so those are called dispensations. Okay. So you have to understand where the writer was, what dispensation he was in to know how to approach that scripture. You can't read something that he didn't know about. The other way to look at Scripture and interpret it is covenant theology. Uh, Scripture also has covenants throughout uh, the Bible. And uh, some people, those who believe in what's called covenant theology, uh, say that dispensations don't exist, that God manages his kingdom through agreements or covenants that he has made with people. And... um, Basically, traditional covenant theology sees three covenants. There was a pre-temporal covenant. (laughs) Before creation, God and the Holy Spirit and the Son got together and decided on a program of redemption. They made a covenant to redeem people. Then after creation, God made a covenant with Adam, a covenant of works. We looked at this a little bit last time. In which he said to Adam, if if you uh, obey, if you do what I say and don't do what I tell you not to do, then you can stay in the garden. But as soon as you disobey, you're out of here. Well, they disobeyed. So as soon as they disobeyed, God came up with a third covenant, which is a covenant of... Um, I want to say redemption, but he said. that <laughs> Grace, that's what it is. The covenant of grace, okay? So Adam blew it with a covenant of works. And so now God initiated a covenant of grace, and that covenant of grace incorporates all of the covenants that are listed throughout Scripture, most of them with Israel. It just... It, in, incorporated
1: within the covenant of grace?
0: Yes, like it's, that those that are the ways...
1: Abraham yeah,
0: those David. are the, those are the ways that God has enacted that covenant of grace or implemented that covenant of grace. So that's that's covenant theology. Okay, we'll talk more about that. <laughs> yeah, our our denomination, most conservative denominations, are um, dispensational, okay. and we've talked about the the history of those things before, Um, and again, I don't want to get bogged down in that because that's not our purpose. The people who believe in covenant theology basically say that that was the the position of the early church from the very beginning up through the first 500 years, that they all focused on these covenants. Other people say the covenant theology didn't start until the Reformation with John Calvin when he put these things together. And throughout the years, the different groups who hold the covenant theology modified the concept of the covenants. And so it's a real mess. It's a real mess. Just for your awareness, so you understand how it's going to impact your understanding of Scripture, which we will talk about when we finish going over the covenants. Okay. So if you have that handout, which I gave you last time, everybody you guys I gave it out initially a couple weeks ago and then again last week. So the first page covers the dispensations. We went over that. On the back we have the covenants, and we're, we we kind of got through the first few of those last time. So we'll continue with those tonight. The second covenant there we talked about is the covenant with Adam. That's the covenant of works. And again, Scripture never says that, okay? That's nowhere in Scripture. That's just something these theologians came up with. That kind of tells you something about covenant theology. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the covenant theologians, of course, are adamant that dispensationalism is heresy and People who believe in dispensationalists are tools of the devil and all of that stuff. Um, but they have their own problems. Okay? <laughs> but anyway, I think we talked about the covenant, started at least with the covenant with Abraham, number four. The first ones there are kind of universal, dealing with all mankind. But the covenant with Abraham gets down to a particular family group. And from there on, the rest of the covenants deal with Abraham and his descendants, Israel, you know, David and all that stuff. So it's getting a little narrower. So we have the two parts of the covenant with Abraham, and that is that God would make Abraham the founder of a great nation. Remember, his name was originally Abram, Avram in in Hebrew. Av, his father, and Ram means a multitude, many. He changed his name to Avraham, <laughs> added a little syllable in there, which is an intensifier. So he has, he was going to be the father of many. Now he's going to be the father of innumerable. <laughs> so he changed his name to match that function. All right. And the second part of that, and here we come, uh, come up with a... Uh, and anachronism i mentioned before that we have some theological and other problems with these covenants this is one of the other problems this is anachronism anachronism what does anachronism mean anachronism is something that's out of date
1: okay.
0: yeah <laughs> yeah yeah chronos is time so that's the chronism part of it and ana means again so usually an anachronism, you're putting something in a time span where it doesn't belong. Okay, We have an anachronism here with the second part of the Abrahamic covenant, at least the way it's stated here. The second part was that God would someday give Palestine forever to Abraham's seed. That's not true. <laughs> yeah. Then we include the covenant, the Palestinian or land covenant? Um, Yeah, right. That's another word, another aspect of the Abrahamic covenant is usually called the Palestinian covenant. But Palestinian is an anachronism, the word Palestine didn't exist in Abraham's day. But <laughs> right,
1: right, it didn't exist until so the Romans gave it going.
0: Actually, it was the 5th century B.C., 400, 475-something. Herodotus, the Greek historian. Mm. Uh, this is the time of Esther, when Esther and Mordecai were in Persia, trying to save the Jews. Herodotus was writing a history, <laughs> and he included in his history the Philistine. Which were a sea people. Let's go to the map.
1: <laughs> the Philistines were in the Aegean area. Here's Greece, and this is the Aegean Sea. So the Philistines were in this area, and Herodotus said they left and they sailed down here and settled on the sea coast. But he said that their influence was felt throughout the whole land. inhabited the seaboard mm-hmm. but have, we know that from later on from Israel's history they would have inhabited that area close to the sea that would have been a trade route out of Egypt clear up into uh, the Hittites right,
0: uh, right. Yeah. so Herodotus named that area which we now would call Israel he named it the land of the Philistines And land of Philistines is Palestine. (laughs) So Palestine didn't show up until the fifth century BC. And when did Abraham live? He's in the nineteenth the twentieth and twenty-first century BC. So it's fifteen hundred years before the name Palestine ever existed. God didn't promise Palestine to Abraham. He promised the promised land to Abraham be the land in his day? yeah exactly that area was called Canaan and the, the people who dwelt in that land were called Canaanites but that consisted of many tribes you have the Hevites and the Perizzites and the Kenites and, and the Amorites they're all in they're all Canaanites okay but if you look at the border of the land that God promised Israel, it's not just Palestine.
1: <laughs> I mean,
0: it's, mm-hmm.
1: you know, here's Israel here. He promised them pretty much this whole area. Mm-hmm. It doesn't go to the Nile from the Nile to the Euphrates, something like that, almost to yeah, yeah. Of the Nile. Yeah. Fact, it says the river of Egypt, right? and there's a debate about what the river of Egypt river? is. Yeah. It could be the Nile, but there's also a little tributary right down here called the river of Egypt. So, some people say, it, but I was probably named later, though. So, I don't know if someone <laughs> that, that river you pointed at you just now, the river of Egypt, I, I recently was reading where in Joshua he, he says that he went down into the land of Goshen.
0: And I've always, well, Goshen is over there in Egypt. It's in the Delta. But that yeah. area by that river you pointed, it was called the land of Goshen. Hmm. It was done as a sort of a, a remembrance of being in Egypt. Huh? That would make sense. Yeah. Palestine remember was in the news this past week because somebody tried to put Bethlehem in Palestine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the, so the name Palestine wasn't around when Abraham was there. It didn't show up until the 5th century B.C. Right. But after that, it was applied finally, as you mentioned, Rome, AD 135, Titus put down the final Jewish rebellion and said, We're not going to have any more of this. <laughs> so he renamed it. <laughs> it's no longer Israel. Now it's hyphenated Palestine, Syria. Palestine hyphen Syria. What does Palestine mean? The land of the Philistines. The coast in the south is where
1: they landed. Palestine, Syria. And so all of this now is Palestine, and Syria is no longer Israel. So Titus said, "Getting rid of that,
0: <laughs> we're not even going to think of it in those terms anymore." <laughs> so since then, it's been called Palestine. But it is true that God promised Abraham the land; he and his descendants would occupy the land. Now we know that didn't happen right then. Book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Abraham and his descendants lived as sojourners in the land. And they weren't upset about it because they were looking for something more permanent, the the ultimate eternal promised land, not the temporary one that's here on the globe. So that's part of the covenant with Abraham. And you remember we talked about this last week. This is an unconditional covenant. Abraham, God had Abraham cut the animals in half, and and uh, the normal thing to do would be the two parties who were making the agreement would walk down between those animals, reciting the conditions of the covenant and promising to keep the covenant, and they would give that little oath at the end. You know, may God do so to me, and more also if I don't keep my part of the bargain, meaning may He cut me in half as we did these animals. And even more, I think, what more (laughs) could you do? (laughs) Yeah, what more could you do? But it says there that God walked through those animals himself. Abraham was asleep. So Abraham had nothing to do with that agreement. It was all on God's part. He committed himself to fulfilling it. So it's unconditional. Then we get to the covenant with Moses and As I read over this, I realized that this list of covenants has been been influenced by the idea of covenant theology, as we will see as we go along. This is one instance, I think, the covenant with Moses and Israel. uh, Notice the two conditions of this covenant, that Israel would have the land at that time to enjoy if she obeyed, and that Israel would forfeit all God's blessings if she disobeyed. When I think of the Mosaic covenant, I think more of the Ten Commandments (laughs) in the sacrificial system and all the ceremonies and all of that stuff. Yeah. Now, enjoying the benefits of the land is certainly part of that, because Moses rehearses that. I think the verse they have there, Deuteronomy 28, he makes that very clear. And that may raise a question. If he promised Abraham that he and his descendants would inhabit that land forever... And then 400 years later, we have the law, and God says, well, you can be in the land if you mind your P's and Q's.
1: <laughs>
0: That's what it sounds like. Is that a contradiction? Yeah. They have to leave. <laughs> That's what Isaiah said, yeah. you know. Um I don't think it's a contradiction. I think it's a matter of perspective. The covenant with Abraham was kind of like this is a, you know, okay Abraham, this is your family and your descendants and I'm going to give you guys this land forever. We get to Moses and we're down to the 12 tribes. And in this time period, within this time period, <laughs> we've got some conditions. <laughs> God says, as long as you obey, you can stay in the land and I'll be sure you have bumper crops and, and uh, no one will harass you. You know, you'll be safe, secure, and prosperous, all of that stuff. But if you disobey, you're out of here. It's my land. It's not yours. And if you misuse my land, you can't stay there. This was the, the message of all the prophets, at least the prophets that spoke to Israel. Not all the prophets in the Bible were prophets to Israel. Uh, Jonah and Nahum were prophets to Nineveh. Um, Obadiah was prophet to Edom, a country just east of Israel and across the Jordan River. But those who spoke to Israel had the same message. They said, if you mess up, you're in trouble. <laughs> You've messed up. So you need to straighten up. If you don't straighten up, judgment is coming. You haven't straightened up, (laughs) so judgment is coming, but God will restore you eventually. That's the same message from all of the prophets. Different situations, different circumstances, same issue. You kind of have a microcosm of that in the book of Judges. If you remember the cycle of obedience, you know, and then disobedience and judgment and then repentance and restoration. Yeah, same thing. So I think... The covenant to Abraham is unconditional. His descendants will get that land. But between then and when they get the land, we have some things <laughs> cautions. Would you say that the, <clears throat> the ultimate fulfillment of that is is fulfillment of the uh, Abraham covenant? Right. If that's where the promise of the land is made. Right. Okay. Yeah. And that starts in, in the millennium when Israel is finally where they belong, and it's going to carry on throughout eternity. Uh, So the sixth covenant there is the covenant with David, the, the, the Davidic covenant, and three aspects of that, that from David would come an everlasting throne, an everlasting kingdom, and an everlasting king. And this is God's work. This is what he said he would do. It's not conditional, it's unconditional. It wasn't dependent on what David did or any of his descendants. And that, of course, will be fulfilled initially in the millennium when Christ is on the throne, since he is a descendant of David and he is the eternal king. We have the seventh covenant, and I don't agree with this one either, because it says it's a covenant with the church. To me, the covenant with the church is the new covenant. Because it's the new covenant that made the church possible. But he's looking at it a little differently. (laughs) Whoever put this list together, I don't know who. Um, This is God's dealing with the church. okay, As an entity in itself. So we have three conditions there. That Christ would build his church with his own blood. He says at the Last Supper, you know, this cup is the covenant in my blood and he said there i think it's in matthew 16 he asked the disciples who do you say that i am and peter says you're the christ the son of living god and christ answers you're right <laughs> and based on that i'm going to build my church so that's the first part he's going to build his church I have a problem with the second statement here, that all the fury of hell would not destroy it. Jesus continued that statement. He said, on that rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it or overcome it. Whoever put this together defines the gates of hell as the fury of hell, as though hell was in opposition to the church. That bothers me. <laughs> A lot of people believe that Satan, Satan, well, hell is Satan's realm. That Satan rules from hell and launches attacks from hell. <laughs> no, John Milton made that mistake. In Paradise Lost, his, his first epic poem, when Satan is kicked out of heaven, he has Satan say, It's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. But Satan doesn't reign in hell. How does the scripture define hell? Hell is not a domain. Hell is a prison. (laughs) And Satan and his angels and anyone who takes Satan's side are inmates. Satan doesn't rule in hell. He's a prisoner or will be during the millennium. Around the earth, around, right? Around the world. Yeah, but yeah. well, that's not hell. <laughs> no, but he will be during the millennium.
1: But, but he doesn't have, he does have access
0: to hell. Well, yeah, on Job. right, yes. right. But yeah, that's a different issue. <laughs> okay, yeah, so these people see hell as an opponent of the church. Okay. But Satan isn't in charge of hell. Hell is not his domain. Who's in charge of hell? God is. What did Jesus tell his disciples in Matthew 10 when he sent them out? He said, don't fear those who can destroy the body. In other words, as you're going out preaching the message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, so repent. You're liable to get some persecution. (laughs) Don't worry about that. We're we're back to... uh, Uh, first Peter here, you know, same message. Don't worry about the persecution. Don't be afraid of those people. Instead, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That's God. Okay. So he's sending them out to do God's work. So you better do, you know, what God told you to do. Don't be afraid of those who tell you not to. Now we're back to Nehemiah building the wall, you know, with all the opposition, you know, you guys go away. We have a job to do. So it's not that hell is in opposition to the church or that Satan is for that matter. So again, the, the King James says the gates of hell. So we know that hell is not Satan's domain. There's no power in hell except the power that keeps people in there. If you go to uh, Revelation, we won't take time, but the end of the book of Revelation when God is wrapping everything up, he says there that death and Hades, which is Greek name for hell, will empty the dead that are in them into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the eternal punishment. Hell is a temporary holding tank, okay? So hell is associated with death. It's not a power. (laughs) It's not a place of power that Satan can wield. It's death. So what about the gates? Throughout the Old Testament, you have people talking about the gates of the city. The gates of the city is a metaphor for where they do the business of the city, city government. Yeah. 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 So why they wanted to hold city business out at the gate, I don't know. (laughs) That's what they did. In Genesis 19, you know, it says that Lot was sitting in the gates of Sodom. He was a member of the city council. You remember a few chapters before he separated from Abraham because there wasn't enough wasn't enough grazing room in Israel. So he went down into the valley east of what would now be Jerusalem down at the Dead Sea area. It's much more fertile because it's lowland. The water goes down there from the Jordan, you know, and it floods every once in a while and you can grow crops and he could feed his cattle. And eventually he settled in Sodom and became part of the city government. So the gates of is the authority of. So the gates of hell, if hell is death, we're talking about the authority or the power of death. So when he says he will build his church and the gates of hell will not destroy it or prevail against it, he's basically saying it's never going to end. It's not going to die. Death we'll have no power over the church. It's gonna be an eternal thing. So I got a problem with the way they stated that there. Hell has no fury. That's, that's an old saying. <laughs> but that also has the wrong idea of hell. <laughs> yeah, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Yeah, that's the saying. But that also misunderstands the nature of hell. So hell is not a source of power. Okay, it's, it's not in opposition to the church. He's talking about the end. Okay? Mm-hmm. The church is never going to end. It's not going to die. Right. It's not going to be an eternal thing, which leads to the third part of that covenant that he would perfect all the members of his church. I think Hebrews 13, the passage is what they had intended to uh, emphasize that point, but I don't think that really applies. I would rather put in there verses like uh, Philippians six. He who began a good work in you will complete it. And John chapter 6, where Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father first draws him. And everyone that the Father gives to me, I'm not going to lose any of them. We're in the Father's hand. We're in Christ's hand. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. you can't get out. There are denominations, which you're aware of, that think you can lose your salvation. But Scripture doesn't say that. So that's the idea here of the covenant with the church. And then we get to number eight, which is the new covenant with Israel. This brings up another issue that I think is a problem in interpreting Scripture. And it goes back to an, uh, anachronisms. We have a tendency, I find this tendency in myself, and I have to fight it all the time. We have a tendency to take our understanding of things. And read them back into Scripture. We think of the New Covenant, salvation by grace. You trust Christ and, and ask God to apply His sacrifice on your behalf, and your sins are forgiven, and that's it. You know that's the New Covenant. That's not the New Covenant. <laughs> that is part of or an extension of the New Covenant. Was a covenant. With Israel, not with the church. The church exists because of the new covenant. Because the new covenant expanded God's grace to everybody. Throughout the Gospels, That's was that he was talking to Jews about Jewish yes. issues, yes. specifically the old covenant.
1: Yeah.
0: Just to Israel. Right. Yes. Exactly. So when he inaugurates the new covenant... This is another part of progressive revelation. We learn something new about God with a new covenant that his grace expands to everybody. Ephesians chapters 2 and 3, we see that God removed the old covenant, the commandments, the ordinances against us, and therefore broke down the barrier between Jews and Gentiles. So both now approach God in the same way, which is through faith. Paul says the same kind of thing in in, uh, Romans 9, 10, and 11. God has temporarily set Israel aside so the Gentiles could come in. And then the fact that the Gentiles are horning in on Israel's (laughs) territory is going to make them want to come back, Paul says. So we see, you know, the, the new covenant was prophesied in Jeremiah 31, and it's summarized in Hebrews chapter 8. You may remember that from our study of Hebrews a while back. The the reason for the new covenant is that people couldn't keep the old covenant. It was rules and regulations imposed from outside. The law said, if you sin, you die. God said, but I'll be gracious. I will allow you a substitute death. So when you sin, if you offer a sacrifice for that sin then you can stay alive. I'll accept that substitute death on your behalf. But people were still, Hebrew says, infected with sin. They could not maintain their obedience to the new covenant or to the old covenant. Therefore, God said, I'm going to make a new covenant. I'll put my laws in their hearts. So they will want to obey. So the the basic defect with the old covenant, the writer to Hebrew says, is that it didn't enable people to obey it. It required obedience, but didn't enable obedience. The New Covenant will enable obedience because it's gonna be an internal thing, not an external thing. But it's a covenant with Israel, not with Gentiles. We too often, I too often think New Covenant, New Testament, you know, but that's just a shallow part of it. That's an extension of it, okay? The main thing is with Israel. It's all about Israel. We see that kind of thing in a combination of those things in uh, Romans chapter 10, uh, verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That comes from the Old Testament. <laughs> That's a Jewish text. okay? But it's applied in... A New Testament context. So he is making that application of the new covenant with Israel to everybody else. You know, again, Ephesians 2 and 3, the Gentiles are now part of Israel, but Israel can now go to God through faith. They don't have to follow the law anymore. I'm kind of working through this. I, as I've been reviewing this, a thought came to mind. In Ephesians 2 and 3, it says the Gentiles have been brought in with the Jews, okay? In Romans 9, 10, and 11, it says that eventually the Jews will be brought in with the Gentiles. We're dealing with two terms here, the kingdom, which is Israel, and the church. It seems to me, and again, I haven't come to this point exactly, I'm still thinking through this, it seems that we get to the point where the kingdom and the church are the same thing, just from different points of view, because God is going to establish his kingdom all through the Bible. It talks about kingdom, 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 in reference to Israel. And then after the new covenant, so the church, the church, the church. But we have verses who show that show the same people are in both places. So they are going to be the same thing. It's kind of like communism and fascism. You know, people seem to think, people think in a linear way. Communism is on the left, liberal. Fascism is on the right, ultra conservative. And they see a line, a continuum. So, Communism is on one end of the line. Fascism is on the other end of the line. I don't think so. I think it's a circle. And communism and fascism are the same point on that circle. You get there in different directions, but you get to the same point (laughs) where the people are. You
1: still
0: die. Yeah, you still die. Yeah. (laughs) The people are under subjection by the government one way or another. (laughs) Okay, You get to the same point. So I'm thinking eventually under the new covenant, the church and the kingdom become the same thing. Uh, Paul says in, in uh, again, Romans nine, ten, and 11, that not all Israelites are true Israelites. He says there, just because you were a physical descendant of Abraham doesn't mean you're part of God's kingdom. The Jews who become part of God's kingdom are the ones who enter through faith, just like Abraham. So there will be a remnant, the Bible says, of Israel. So the Jews, you know, we're talking about spiritual Israel as Paul defines it there. Okay. There's physical Israel and there's spiritual Israel. So Paul divides Israel into two parts, those who are physical descendants, genetic Israelites, and those who are spiritual Israelites, those who come by faith. So the Israelites who come by faith are part of God's kingdom, and they join the Gentiles who come by faith. So you got the kingdom and you got the church, and to me, it's, again, I'm just, I'm still thinking through this, but it seems they come to the same place. Uh, anyway, quickly, this last covenant, we'll look at the conditions here. That God would eventually bring Israel back to himself all the prophets said that uh, and the New covenant re-emphasized that. secondly that he would forgive their iniquity and forget their sins that's part of it because they're taken care of in Christ's sacrifice so they're gone. <laughs> Don't need to worry about those anymore. Thirdly that he would use them Israel to reach and teach Gentiles. That was the, the plan from the very beginning if you go back to the early chapters of Deuteronomy. God chose Israel to be missionaries to the rest of the world. That's why he made them different from everybody else, a peculiar people. He says in there, so that when your neighbors, neighboring nations, come to you and ask you, why are you different? You can tell them about me. Unfortunately, Israel got the wrong idea and got to the point where they thought, well, God is our God, he's not yours, <laughs> so we're better than you. <laughs>
1: special. Yeah,
0: (laughs) exactly. And Paul addresses that issue in the first four chapters of Romans. You know, you Jews, just because you have the law, doesn't mean you're better off than the Gentiles because you're not following the law. But the Gentiles who do what's in the law by nature are better off than you because they're actually doing what God wants done. In the millennium, Israel will again be the center of worship on earth, All the nations, it says, will come to them to worship God. Uh, And the last point, that he would establish them in Palestine? No, in the promised land forever, not Palestine. Now, we use the word Palestine. Whoever put this list together probably used it because that's the name we're used to thinking of in terms of that area. But technically, it's not Palestine. So that gets us through the basic covenants that God has made with people, okay? And next time, we're going to wrap this up and show the difference between dispensations and covenants and dispensationalism and covenant theology. Kind of nail the jello to the wall and wrap all this stuff up. Any other observations or comments about any of that? Okay, let's uh, close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the fact that you have revealed yourself to us in different ways at different times. However that revelation was embodied, we thank you for it. We pray that you will enable us to have an accurate understanding of who you are through the revelation that you've given us.
1: In Jesus' name, amen.